Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's September the 7th. It's a late morning in California, in San Francisco, where I live. It's a beautiful day here, really warm, classic San Francisco, early September day. I, Fortunately, however, the weather might be good here, uh, maybe good in the rest of the United States. But the news, as always, is dire. Uh, headlines of the New York Times today. The United States surpasses 40 million known corona uh, virus cases. That's 40 million Americans now have caught coronavirus. Here we have an image from the Times of someone being carried out. I'm not sure if they're dead or alive. They may well be dead as we speak now. Um, just quoting from the Times, more than 40 million cases of the coronavirus have been recorded. The total number of infections, more than the population of California, is a testament to the spread of the coronavirus. It's a testament not just to that, but to other stuff that we're going to talk about today. America loves to be on top of tables, but this is a, a table of shame. The United States now has more COVID-19 cases than anywhere else in the world, 40 million, 659,000, almost 660,000 deaths, according to Wikipedia. And many people suggest that it's a lot more than that. If we put the clock back, to January of 2020, it wasn't that long ago, America had its first COVID case. Taiwan had its first COVID case then too, the island off the mainland of China. Um, the news from Taiwan is much more encouraging. Only eight cases in Taiwan uh, yesterday, eight COVID cases. Um, overall, 16,000 cases uh, in Taiwan with 837 deaths. Uh, Taiwan is near the bottom of the of, of the wiki uh, of the uh, uh, of the COVID uh, league table uh, on Wikipedia. Now, of course, Taiwan is smaller than the US. We all know that. But it speaks of a fundamental difference in healthcare. And my guest today on the show has a new book out. He's been on the show before. He's one of America's best known radio pundits, Tom Hartman. His new book is The Hidden History of American Healthcare. Uh, Tom begins with this comparison between the United States and Taiwan when it comes to COVID. Tom, welcome back. Great to have you. Uh, I've learned a lot from you. You're the master of talking radio. Uh, why is this Taiwan-US comparison so critical? Why do you lead with it in this a new book, uh, The Hidden History of American Healthcare. Because it, it illustrates the, the, the connection, uh, you know, the, the line between the, the absolute um, uh, overlay, the, the kind of Venn diagram between personal healthcare and public health. And uh, because Taiwan has arguably the, the, the best single-payer healthcare system in the world, the most efficient, the least expensive, um, uh, not, uh, not like cheap, but you know, uh, um, the most, most efficient, 
in the most comprehensive, um, they did it right. They built it from scratch very, very quickly and, and absolutely did it right. And so they have a, nation, a complete national database of everybody in the country, you know, tens of millions of people. And so they were able to put into place, uh, we got our first COVID case on January 20th, a year, you know, a year and a half ago, as you point out. Uh, there's, I believe it was the next day or maybe the same day. And uh, within a couple of days, they had a contact tra tracing and testing program in place. And we were just, you know, we spent the whole year just uh, with Trump trying to pretend that it wasn't even a real thing and it was a democratic hoax and just please go back to work and keep the economy going while Taiwan was protecting their people. But um, their national healthcare system, their single payer national healthcare system became the key to their public health system of keeping their population safe and, and having a, a, just a, a tiny fraction on a per capita basis of the of the infections and deaths that we've had here in the United States. Tom, your new polemic, always short and smart and relevant, uh, the hidden history of American health care. The, the money quote, in my mind at least, is um, you're describing the privatized system in America. I'm not sure if that's even the fairest way of calling it. You say it's the largest con job ever perpetrated on the U.S. people, which is quite an achievement because there have been a lot of con jobs. There uh, have. This one represents literally trillions of dollars a year and has for, for you know, half a century. So it's, it's massive. Tell me more about it. The, 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 the subtitle of the book is Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich. You note that there have been a half a uh, that there are usually around a half a million bankruptcies per, per year in the United States. Personal bankruptcies mostly caused by health care. Right. Why is the U.S. healthcare system so emblematic, emblematic of the structural, socioeconomic and political and cultural sickness in America today? Yeah, well, uh, th there's this thing called the commons, um, which is why we institute governments, um, why we create governments. And, and the commons is the stuff that, or one of the reasons that we have governments, and the commons is the stuff that we all depend upon. It's our air, it's our water. But it's also, the, you know, there's a constructed commons. There's the police department, the fire department, the public roads, the public schools. And the, I think a, a piece of the debate in the United States and in other countries around the world with regard to healthcare has always been at, uh, how much is healthcare part of the commons? What part of healthcare should be appropriately part of the commons? Um, in other words, that we all collectively uh, share the risk for versus not the commons, that is to say something that is only handled by private industry and the so-called free market. And of the 34 richest countries in the world, the Organization of Economic and Cooperation and Development, the OECD countries, um, we are the only one that has determined that healthcare is a privilege rather than a right. Once you define healthcare as a right, then it becomes the obligation of government to facilitate that and make that happen. But because we've de defined it as a privilege and as an opportunity for somebody to make a buck, uh, we have ended up with the most expensive healthcare system in the world and um, one of the least efficient and effective healthcare systems in the developed world, certainly. Um, it's the inefficiencies which are so astonishing. I mean, it would be one, it would be bad enough 
if um, it was expensive and you had all these super rich medical bureaucrats and doctors, but it was working, but it's not even working, is it? No, it's, uh, we, there is one area where the United States beats the rest of the world in terms of health outcomes, and that's breast cancer, which has nothing to do with our healthcare system. That's because back in the early 1970s, a group of women got together and you know the science had come out showing that self-examination could catch cancer, breast cancer early and early diagnosis radically improved outcomes. And so they started this uh, nonprofit you know, movement to educate uh, women and girls how to do self-examinations. And that has changed our breast cancer outcomes. And now it's being replicated around the world. But you know, we were the head of the pack in terms of that for a long time, but it had nothing to do with our healthcare system. Um, everything else, uh, on average, we are number 11 among the 34 countries in, in the world in terms of general outcomes. Um, but when you look at things like infant mortality or maternal mortality and morbidity, you know, babies and women, uh, pregnant women having sick, becoming sick or dying, we're in third world status. I mean, we're at the bottom of the list or near, to, very close to the bottom of the list. We have disastrous outcomes from our healthcare system. And, and, and a whole system of perverse incentives built into it or the failure of positive incentives. I was in Denmark uh, back in 2008 doing my radio show and had this conservative on and, and, and I said, oh, you're a conservative. He was a, a member of parliament. And I said, oh, you're, you're, you're you know, one of the top conservatives in the country. You must hate your national healthcare system. And he was like, what, are you crazy? Um, and, and, and so I, I changed the subject. I, uh, we were in Copenhagen and they had just turned a bunch of streets into bike only streets. And I said, you must be really upset that, you know, they, they made some of these streets just bike, bike only streets. I mean, I'm thinking like American conservatives, right? And he's like, no, no, I love it. And I'm like, why? You know, it's a government mandate. And he's like, no, no. It, it, he says, it's going to lower my taxes. And I'm like, what does that have to do with taxes? And he said, well, in Denmark, we pay for our national healthcare system through our taxes. And the fewer people who have heart attacks or get sick or have strokes or other things that are the result of not having enough exercise, um, the more it costs us. So if more people ride their bike to work rather than driving, my taxes are gonna go down and I'm all in favor of that. And so it's like in countries that have national healthcare systems, there is this clear incentive to produce a healthy populace. Here in the United States, because we have a for-profit healthcare system where when somebody gets sick, somebody else makes a pile of money rather than society as a whole ending up with an expense and a loss, because somebody makes money off that, we have a, an epidemic of childhood obesity. We have no government pushback on our, on our crappy food system. We have food deserts in the United States. Um, we don't uh, discourage smoking, you know, the way that we should. Um, we, I mean, it's just, I can go on, right? We have this perverse incentive system as a result of that. Plus, we've got a whole bunch of people getting insanely rich. I mean, you've got just one health insurance company, United Healthcare, that that one of its its CEOs, they called him Dollar Bill McGuire, a phrase the Wall Street Journal gave him, um, who took over one point, who, who walked off with over $1.6 billion from that company. I mean, a lot of that was stock options, but still uh, $1.6 billion. Um, he was followed by Stephen Hemsley, who made over $700 million. Um, and but, and he, it's not just the guys making the hundreds of millions or the billions. 
it all brings to mind David Graeber's wonderful book on bullshit jobs. This privatized healthcare industry has created millions of bullshit jobs, which are overpaid and underproductive. Yeah. It's, it's basically the, a, a privatized version of the Soviet Union, isn't it? Profound inefficiency, corruption, people not doing very much. Meanwhile, the society around them falling to pieces. In New York, there is a hospital. I'm sorry, I don't have it on the top of my head. I, I need to look it up in my own book. But there's a hospital in New York that is virtually identical to a hospital in Toronto. They both have roughly the same number of beds and you know, basically the same size, same services. The one in New York has a floor and a half devoted to billing. You know, hundreds of people working there, uh, billing all the different insurance companies and Medicare and Medicaid and states and private bullshit, billing. Bullshit, to put, to, to use you, your bullshit jobs. jobs. These are exactly. bullshit jobs, right? The hospital in Toronto has one office with two desks and three people for the whole hospital. I'm pleased you brought up Canada, Tom, because uh, you'll remember that famous encounter between Hillary and Bernie Sanders in the 2016 debates when Bernie was going on and on about something in Denmark and Hillary in the way that only Hillary could do this, turn around to him and said, oh, Bernie, that's wonderful. I love Denmark, but we can't become Denmark. I buy her argument on that. It's very hard to replicate Denmark outside of Scandinavia, but we can replicate Canada, can't we? Canada is a model that... Uh, the United States is in many ways equivalent to similar size country, perhaps smaller, but there's no reason why we can't replicate the Canadian model. Yeah. Population wise, we're smaller, but, but um, yeah. And, and in fact, I, my guess is that's how it's going to happen. Um, it, it started in Saskatchewan when Tommy Douglas, the, the, the provincial governor um, uh, or whatever his title is for the head of the province of this, what we would call a state of Saskatchewan, uh, put into place a single-payer healthcare system it, it, back in the early 60s. It worked so well that the nearby provinces were like, you know, Alberta and and uh, I forget the other one, were like, hey, this is cool. We should do this. And, you know, within a, within a few years, it spread all the way across Canada. And then the federal government came in and said, okay, we're going to backstop you guys. But it's actually different in each state. Some states cover dental. Some states don't. Some states, you know, it's $110 a month for your, you know, to buy into the system. Other states, it's like $85 a month. Um, you know, it's, it's, so there are regional variations, but generally speaking, everybody in Canada is covered by a Medicare for all system that's administered at the state level. Here in the United States, we've had two states now, Vermont and, and California, that have both passed through their legislature single payer health care programs that their governors wanted to put into place. And the problem that uh, Peter Shumlin was the governor in Vermont, a friend of mine, Hal Cohen, was the head of uh, HEW in Vermont at the time. Um, he, you know, they got it through the legislature. He signed the law. And then they discovered that um, the, this weird little uh, quirk in our Medicare and Medicaid laws that basically says that if a state goes single payer, if they are going to cover everybody in the state, that all the Medicare and Medicaid money coming into that state ceases to come into the state. And to, and so it's impossible for an individual state to do what Saskatchewan did to create a single payer system and become a model and spread all across the country. That can be fixed with a very small tweak of the Medicare and Medicaid laws that has been proposed in Congress year after year after year by, by Democrats, by progressives, and is consistently opposed by Republicans in the health insurance industry because they want to keep the profits flowing. The situation is so bad that we had um, 
I don't know if you're familiar with him. He he teaches at Stanford uh, Medical School. He's a very distinguished doctor. I think he ran one of the big insurance companies, Robert Pearl. He has a a book out, a new book on caring. Um, And he's as critical as you are in many ways of the system. But he argues, and, and he's an insider, that the doctors are incredibly miserable too. So it's not as if the doctors are happy. Many of them are making decent money. But it's an incredibly hard job. They have to deal with the insurance companies. So this is creating general misery, both amongst doctors and patients, isn't it? Yeah, one of the larger groups advocating, uh, two of the larger groups advocating for single-payer healthcare in the United States are, are a, doc, a, group, a doc group, uh, you know, Physicians for National Health Program, PNHP.org, I think is their website. And then the other one is National Nurses United, which is the largest or second largest nurse group in the United States, um, which has been, you know, just outspoken on this issue for, uh, you know, at least a decade. And uh, the physicians group, I think they've got between 20 and 30,000 uh, people. I, I, I don't recall off the top of my head. The nurses group is, you know, similar, uh, probably larger, much larger now. Um, so, yeah, healthcare providers, healthcare professionals. Uh, we were having uh, dinner a couple of nights ago with a neighbor who's just a retired doctor. And he's like, it's insane. It's just insane. He says, there's a few people on a few specialties who are literally making millions and millions of dollars a year. And then you've got, you know, people who really should be uh, applauded by society. You know, our, our pediatricians, our general practitioners, our psychiatrists who can barely get by, you know, uh, you know, uh, not, not, you know, they're not starving obviously, but you know, they're, they're not making anything close to what they should be making, uh, you know, in a system that actually promotes value and, and values the health of society. And it's so true. Tom, uh, this time last year, you, you you came on the show to talk about um, uh, the, the headline is, uh, is America due for a reboot? I'm not sure whether we have an answer to that. You were talking about your, your, your another in this series, the hidden history of monopolies. How does your interpretation of the problem with American monopolies in its capitalist system and the crisis of the healthcare, how are they connected? Are they Big insurance companies, are they in a sense monopolies? They are, yeah, or uh, oligopolies anyway, you know, which is where you have a small group of companies who operate as if they were a monopoly. Uh, and, and they do it through their, their trade organizations and their front groups, um, uh, as well as, you know, through just, you know, legal collaboration. And, uh, and in fact, one of the proposals that I put in the end of the book, I mean, this is, this is the problem, right? If, if you're going to go to a single-payer healthcare system, you've got five or six companies that are huge, huge companies that are spinning off in ag, you know, between, the, between the five or six of them, probably $10, $15 billion a month in profits and that's going to their stockholders and whatnot, they can easily slice off, you know, 500 million, a billion dollars and just drench American media with uh, propaganda to, to destroy those politicians or stop the program. And uh, which is what Obama was afraid of, which is why he went with, you know, bringing in the insurance companies rather than trying to push them out. So what I'm saying is, if you look at the market capitalization of those companies, the value, if you were simply to go onto the New York Stock Exchange and buy all their stock, it's about $1.1 trillion, which is you know half of, of Trump's tax cut. It's not that much money, really, in the grand scheme of things. So why don't we just buy all these insurance companies, make their stockholders whole, so you know we don't have to deal with 
rich people grieving and uh, and then move their employees over to Medicare and Medicaid or Medicaid, you know, Medicare for all. And, uh, you know, obviously some of them are going to lose their jobs. There'll be a lot of redundancies. We'll, we'll, we'll even set aside some money to find, you know, retrain them and get them back out in the workforce. Tom, are you saying that the Obamacare reform was a complete failure? Is there anything positive about it? I mean, I guess it's better than the old system, but is it so half-hearted and so much of a compromise that basically the problems of the old system haven't been fixed? To some extent. I, I, I don't blame uh, Obamacare and President Obama's efforts uh, quite so much as I blame John Roberts. Um, had the individual mandate uh, stood, had the the uh, uh, Medicaid expansion, that's really the big one. You know, we have 12 states in the United States that are refusing to offer Medicaid uh, health insurance to low-income workers. And this is this is uh, health care that goes to people who are actually working, but they're not making enough to qualify for Obamacare. And so Obamacare had built into it that if you make under, it's typically around twelve dollars or $13,000 a year. If you make under that minimum, then you automatically get Medicaid um, instead of Obamacare, instead of having to pay for health insurance. And the Supreme Court came in and said, oh, you know, you can't do that. States can opt out of this, you know, states' rights, 10th Amendment and all that. And uh, so uh, there's that. And then, of course, there was the public option. And that was killed by Joe Lieberman after he took a million dollars from the health insurance industry. Yeah, you know that in the book. Um, this is a political problem, of course. We yeah. had uh, Thomas Frank on the show. I'm sure you're all too familiar with I his know. excellent books on uh, populism, white, uh, w w white working class populism. It seems as so often in America, people are voting against their own interests because it's in the interest of the white working class to have a, a single payer system, but they vote against it. Uh, we had uh, Heather McGee on the show recently too. Her new book, The Sum of Us, suggests that many white people vote against their own interests because they're racist. What role, given the deeply structural nature of racism and the problems associated with that in American economics and culture and politics. What role does race play, do you think, in America's failure to reform its medical system? Well, this was the single most shocking thing that I learned um, when I was doing the research for this book. Um, back in the 1890s, a, a young fellow from Germany came over here. His name was Frederick Ludwig Hoffmann. And uh, he married a Southern belle down in Georgia. He was a, a polymath. He was brilliant, actually, with statistics. He was the guy who determined that there was a, a proof that there was an association between smoking and lung cancer, asbestos and mesothelioma, and eating processed food and getting cancer. And in fact, his book on diet and cancer is still in print. Um, so he was very, very famous. He was hired by the Prudential Insurance Company, uh, which was a life insurance company at the time. He ran the numbers on black versus white Americans, on African-Americans versus uh, white people, and saw that they were black people were dying in huge numbers uh, out of proportion to what they should have been dying and were sick in, out of proportion to what they should have been. Again, keep in mind, this was right around the turn of, this, of the 20th century, 1900. And so in 1896, the year that we got Plessy versus Ferguson, he published a book called Race Traits and Tendencies of the American Negro. And in that book, he argued that blacks were genetically inferior, so genetically inferior 
that if we simply denied black people health care for a couple of generations, they would all die out and that would, quote, solve the race problem in America. He took this on the road. This book was a major bestseller in the United States. He took this program on the road. Um, it was uh, sponsored in large part, sponsored is the wrong word, but supported by Prudential Life Insurance. And, and he testified before Congress. He, was, uh, he, he visited states all over the country. Um, he was uh, quoted in all the newspapers and media. Um, it became, in the 1920s, it was named Scientific Racism. Uh, it provided the foundation for the, the eugenics movement of the 1920s that Pre President Woodrow Wilson was all enthusiastic about. Um, which Adolf Hitler picked up and then used as the rationale for his final solution in the 40s. Um, and that idea that um, we have to keep, white people have to keep healthcare away from black people so that the black race will die out, um, it was so pervasive in the United States in the 1880s um, in a quote, scientific way. From the 1880s to the 1960s, that the argument made by Southern white Democratic senators, they were called Dixiecrats, the white racists in the South then, um, like Strom Thurmond and, and uh, John Stennis and these guys, was that there had to be a 20% gap in Medicare so that black people over 65 who were very poor would not be able to pay that 20% gap so they wouldn't show up in the hospitals and inflict themselves on the good white people in the hospitals. Um, I mean, that's how recent this uh, ideology uh, has infected our healthcare decisions. But is there a, a is there a connection between that overt sort of neo-Nazi uh, ideology and today's uh, white working class hostility to a single payer system? Is it in people? Is it's it in the quite, back of their minds or is this more overt? Well, it's, it's not quite that direct because uh, Medicare, in, in the, the first year of Medicare, Medicare required that hospitals be integrated and if they wanted to get federal funds. And so what happened was um, uh, Medicare became the single most effective racial integration program in the history of the United States. And you would like Medicare. I mean, you, you approve of Medicare. Oh, I've been on Medicare. You think it works? It's great. Um, you know, I, I even had a back surgery. I never saw a bill. I mean, it's just, it's wonderful. You, you, you don't have to do any kind of song and dance anywhere. Um, but uh, I, what, what happened was up until the 60s, it was all about race. In the 60s and 70s and 80s, that's when the big health insurance companies really came into their own. Health insurance as an industry only emerged in the United States in the 1930s and 1940s. Prior to that, health care was relatively inexpensive. And, and it was heavily regulated. I ran a business in Michigan in the 70s, in the early 70s. We had uh, 18 employees. We gave health insurance to all our employees. Every hospital in Michigan was required to be not-for-profit. The insurance companies were required to be not-for-profit. cost me $30 per person per month for, for full, comprehensive Blue Cross Blue Shield health insurance for everybody because it was a nonprofit. But But during that time in the 70s and 80s, it went, it became very, very profitable. And then when Reagan's, you know, stopped enforcing the antitrust laws, you saw this, uh, you know, hundreds of insurance companies become dozens of insurance companies and really start squeezing people hard. 
And so now the antipathy is being driven by propaganda from a very, very profitable industry. And so it's not so much race as it is ideology. It's, it's you know, conservative slash libertarian ideology, which says, let the market do everything, leave it up to the big companies, they know best. Uh, we don't want big government handling our money uh, versus people who are saying, hey, wait a minute, every other country in the world has, you know, a, a national healthcare system. They're not all single payer, but most of them. And uh, it works better, produces better outcome and is cheaper. <laughs> you know, so that's what it's come down to. Finally, uh, 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 we had, um, uh, uh, Tom, we had uh, Yanis Varoufakis. I, I, again, I, I know you know him, uh, one of Bernie Sanders' great allies, the Greek polemicist, former economics minister. He has a new book out, Another Now, A Science Fictional Imagination of the Future, an alternative to now, a, mm -hmm. a world which he imagines things could be better. Uh, from 2025 or 2036. Uh, finally, sketch out another now for healthcare. Where could America realistically be in 2025 or 2030 if we do the right thing? Yeah, I think it's a, it's, it's a pretty straightforward process. We've got um, two large sets of parasites attached to our body politic, like leeches on our backs sucking um, between the two of them probably a trillion dollars a year in profits or hundreds of billions certainly um, in profits out of us. And so the average American is paying probably around $3,000 a year more for healthcare than in any other developed country. And those are, that's the for-profit hospital uh, industry and the, uh, which most states used to require being not profit pre-Reagan and the for-profit health insurance industry. And we need to go back to requiring that hospitals be not-for-profit organizations and, and, and enforce the anti-monopoly laws and break, break up these giant hospital chains, um, and, uh, which is how people like Rick Scott got rich. And, um, and, and we need to replace our health insurance industry, let, you know, shrink it down like it is in most other countries where you know, if rich people want to have a cool health insurance policy, so that they get a private suite when they go to the hospital or they get a private jet that will fly them as a air ambulance if they're out of the country, those kinds of things. The well, free grapes. Free, what about the free grapes, Tom? There you go. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and you know, just, you know, uh, gourmet meals delivered to their uh, uh, to their yeah. to their suites, you know, yeah, fine. Let them buy a policy from those insurance companies. But we need to have a base level of coverage that is for everybody. And that and that really starts with defining healthcare as a right instead of a privilege. Well, that's a great summary. Tom Hartman, as always, on the money or against the money and on the money, your program, The Tom Hartman Show, is, is very popular. Uh, this new book um, is uh, a hidden, uh, sorry, uh, A Hidden History of uh, American Healthcare, I think, is out today. It's readable. It can be read in, in a couple of hours. It's a tremendous polemic against the current system. Congratulations, Tom, on, on, on your excellent work. Continue to fight the good fight. And I'm sure we will see you again on the show in the not too distant future. Thank you so Thank much. You, Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. It's always great talking with you. You're very insightful uh, questions and you have a good grasp on these issues, which is wonderful, refreshing. Thank you. I'm sure you tell all the girls that, Tom. Don't I don't, you? actually. <laughs>